Hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by TechNode, seeking truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. I am your host, Elliot Zagman, and with me is the man with a financial plan, James Hull. <laughs> uh, financial plan uh, I don't for know, what? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I at least I don't have a financial plan right now, but I do have a disclaimer. Um, nothing said on this podcast should be construed as investment advice or a solicitation of services. Even our numbers may be incorrect or off. Investing is risky. Speak with your financial advisor and do your own research before making investment decisions. Um, so we're yes, powered we by TechNode. Um, which is the node for what's happening in China's tech and startup ecosystem. While you're listening to this podcast, why don't you go to technode.com forward slash newsletters and type in your email address and sign up for Technode's awesome newsletters. Yeah. So we got a lot going on today. That's good. How's we got that? a lot going on today. Uh, we're going to talk with uh, Alex Bryant and Mark Plum from East West Associates uh, about companies that are moving up, moving out, moving in, moving all over when it comes to, uh, you know, to doing business in China. So we're going to talk to them about, you know, these as there as there are trade conflicts and as kind of the Chinese economy develops, um, you know, manufacturers moving out, moving in, moving further inward and, you know, what goes into all of that. Um, we're also going to talk about Smartisan. We're going to talk about Samsung closing their plant. We're going to talk about uh, Apple suppliers. We're going to talk about our watch list. But first, uh, the central banks, uh, the China's uh, Central Economic Work Committee conference is this week, and people are talking about stimulus. We got stimulus in the news. Uh, this is what, kind of what I'm hearing from from a lot of folks. Um, it seems to be likely um what are you what are you hearing james um about the stimulus it's yeah. i mean i think a lot of people are hoping for a big stimulus um uh i don't know i mean it's it's a problem uh it it's either you know it's they're either going to keep deleveraging or they're going to put on some stimulus and kind of re re-leverage uh, I think it'd be kind of a mistake, my personal opinion, and no one, no one at the China Economic Work Committee conference is contacting me about this. But I would say that um, I think actually reducing the VAT would be the best move, uh, mainly because um, it'll put more cash, I think, in companies' uh, pockets and help kind of lower the debt service burden for them. Um, but the, I mean, the bigger problem is a, a significant stimulus uh, in a fiscal sense would be pulling forward a lot of demand. You know, if they try to uh, kind of stimulate auto purchases or things like that, um, it would pull pull forward demand. And I think China does want to have a glorious hundred year anniversary of the party in 2021, uh, and that means not having a recession then. Um, and also, and also not having one in 2022. Um, so, you know, it's funny when you read all the stuff about them fixing the debt problems and the overlevered companies and uh, the non-performing loans. It all, like, just about every article says by the end of 2020. <laughs> oh, because I think, I think in 2021, which is the hundred-year anniversary of the CCP, they're gonna pedal to the metal with the. Um, 
uh, the stimulus, the stimuli, the debt, the everything's it's going to go, it's going to be, it's going to be glorious, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that they're, the, you know, the word on the street, this is kind of what a lot of the, the prognosticators are saying. Chris Balding had mentioned this uh, when he was on the show that he was seeing and, and hearing about a, a decrease in the VAT going from, you know, over over 50 percent de- decrease from where it is right now, um, which would be a, a significant cut. Um, there's a whole lot of kind of rumors about you know ways in which that they might they might be either to stimulate the economy or to uh, kind of capitulate to to uh, American pressure. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll have to see wait and see you know what comes out of that. I think a lot of these situations you know they, they make the these uh, announcements as well, and then we don't really know how they all play out in practice. Some of the rules are are followed and executed, some of them are not. So. Uh, we'll have to see see what goes here, but the language that that is used, I think, is usually quite important uh, if we pay attention to that. Um, but yeah, moving on, we have uh, Smartisan. So Smartisan is well, the, well hold up. You got to yeah, talk sure. about central banks. Okay, yeah, keep going. Uh, so so it's kind of the big thing here is the U.S. Fed meets this week, and uh, the the Fed already stopped their. I mean, they started quantitative tightening um, in October first. And the ECB will stop QE, which is the new asset purchases, which at right now on a monthly rate, I think, are 15 billion uh, euros. Um, they'll stop that at the end of this month. And that means they will they'll keep buying. Re, they'll keep having to reinvest. So the, the bonds that they bought and uh, as they mature, they'll have to reinvest it. Um, but the problem is. Uh, these, the EU has a lot of non-performing loans. Uh, certain countries have way more than others. Greece and Cyprus and Portugal and Italy are are kind of the, the worst right now. Um, but anyway, the problem is what's going to happen with uh, EU sovereign bonds um, that are trading at less than 1% yield when the ECB is no longer buying what they're selling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. And uh, Stanley Druckenmiller and Kevin Warsh had an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal today about this, basically saying that the, the Fed raising rates while also doing quantitative tightening is like double whammy to liquidity in the market. And maybe that's why we're seeing this big sell-off since October. Mm-hmm. So, um they're they're basically telling the Fed to stop raising rates. But anyway, so I mean, well, this is this is what Trump's been complaining about um, <laughs> that he wants yeah. the 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 well, Fed to. I don't think Trump knows what exactly exactly the nuance there. But yeah, he's, he's a real estate developer. I think re- every real estate developer like wants as liquid a market as possible. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, what, how do you think this is going to impact as uh, you know quantitative easing? ends in in Europe as you know rates interest rates go up um how do you think this is going to impact the chinese market especially as they are not necessarily following suit so they are not they're trying to stimulate probably they are not raising their interest rates um so by having this kind of imbalance in um central bank policy between china and western nations what what do you think we can expect from that Um, probably 
instability. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, when at, when interest rates go up, interest rates are the kind of the base, the sovereign rates at least can be the base rates in a DCF, like calculating your discount rate. And if you have a higher discount rate, your net present value of your future cash flows is lower. So asset prices tend to go down when interest price interest go up. Um, um, so yeah, it's it's I'm I'm gonna guess probably more instability, uh, more issues. Where, I mean, Europe's got a lot of problems. You know, you can see the riots mm. in France, in Paris. Um, you can see. I mean. Just to give you an example, I mean, Greece has non-performing loans to total gross loans and advances of 44.9% as of Q2 of this year. What does year. that mean? So that's, I mean, this, the, that, that means that uh, non-performing loans mean they, for 90 days, um, they're delinquent and they're not paying, paying back their investors. Mm. Um so how do you, you have to work out these things? And like China right now has, Bloomberg had an article that came out, I think this morning, um, and this is Monday, by the way, uh, about there's about all the debt that in China that's uh, delinquent and non-performing and that, and that people, uh, that they need, people are actually going to take, you know, the, the creditors that own the, the bonds are going to take these companies to restructuring or to uh bankruptcy court which really hasn't been done before in China um, you know previously what happens is you get to a workout stage where the company is negotiating with the creditors and they kind of haggle back and forth and they agree to something some restructuring you know selling some stuff maybe but in bankruptcy you know the creditors can take control of the company fire everybody sell all the assets and get some of their money back mm. I mean that's that's usually one way it goes. They can also go to court and get barely anything. Mm. So um, it's is a really important thing. What's what's going to happen because they'll be able to see, okay, bankruptcy court is it a real option to get money uh, to get some to recoup some of their investment, or is it just going to be the, it's the worst decision? So they have to work out with the companies, even if the companies offer them like ten percent on their on a dollar, right? So. Mm. This is really big. We, I mean, we definitely should watch, be watching this. So CEO Luo Yonghao, um, the famous like uh, you know teacher CEO, um, former uh, you know uh, New Oriental Xinongfang teacher, uh, he's no longer their legal rep, and there are rumors that they are laying off employees and relocating offices. Um, Smartisan is was made news earlier this year for their Bullet Messenger which was a flash in the pan, it seems, uh, you know, got a ton of users right away and then stopped. So I don't know what was up with that. But um, have you been following Smartisan much? Um, I wasn't following it that much. But I mean, look, uh, it's pretty rare when companies uh, change legal reps. But if it's happening around the same time as rumors of um, them laying off employees and relocating offices, maybe to someplace cheaper, there might be cash problems at the company and uh, legal reps, at least in China, have to take a lot of responsibility um, mm. if there's uh, if there's a situation where the staff or employees are complaining, um, the legal rep basically has takes the charge of 
figuring a, out a solution. And it's quite, I mean, it's really quite unfair to the legal rep, but um, Loy Yonghao, I mean, you know, he's he's got someone else there now. I mean, <laughs> if this is where it's going, it's I guess it's a good move for him to to be out of the hot seat. Yeah, I mean, what is what does Smartisan really do? They, they tried to be a smartphone company, and they're not really succeeding at that. They tried to do their messenger. They tried to do like a lot of wearables. Um, like I don't. Yeah, were they they were shooting for going, like the man. the lower the lower end smartphone, right? That's a hard market. I mean, yeah, everyone's shooting for the lower yeah. end smartphone, and there's no margin. Highly there, competitive, you know? no it's margins. Yeah. <laughs> How do you differentiate yourself? I mean, it's tough, really tough. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on them. Uh, also, uh, speaking of smartphones, uh, Samsung, uh, who has seen their market share in China just drop yep. precipitously in the in the next uh, in the last five years, really. Who really had their lunch eaten here by Xiaomi and, and Huawei. Um, they're closing their uh, Tianjin smartphone plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they don't have yeah. a single it, phone in the top 10 sales uh, in China. Samsung. Yeah. So. I, I think, I, th- I mean, they, they kind of fell victim to a lot of trends in the market. One being that, you know, in China, if you want a high-end phone, you're usually going to go with an iPhone. Right. And if you're going to go and then what has happened is if you're going to go low end or, or mid tier, um, the Chinese competitors, they make very good phones. And um, and especially, you know, for your Huawei's and not now Xiaomi, like, you know, you can get some really good phones in the middle tier uh, if you're using a uh, um, an Android device. Um, and then I think also there's there's a little bit of the nationalism that 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 plays a role there that people they would rather have a chinese phone than a korean phone in china and and then also the the thad missile issue i think that kind of you know was not particularly good for korean companies in china a couple of years ago when the us installed that defense missile system in korea and china was not too happy so korean cars korean phones korean electronics um it wasn't too good for them at that time so um, yeah, but I think what, one thing to that we're, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit to Alex um, and uh, and um, and Mark about this, um, but we are we are seeing you know as you know these margins get pinched as the Chinese economy slows down as there are more you know international economic conflicts, um, we're going to be seeing some of these companies move out, and another one here is Apple suppliers. So they seem to be looking into relocating um, and are likely going to do so if the tariffs keep going up. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so. I think uh, what it's the conversation with Alex and Mark's really good. They they go into some of the calculus behind why you would re- look into relocating a plant, even within China or without outside of China, um, and kind of what goes into it, how it's done. It's pretty a uh, pretty interesting conversation, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're recording this part of the podcast, you know, after we recorded our interview with them. But I mean, uh, James, you were the one who booked them. And I didn't know much about them before we talked with them. And I was just I was blown away by just how how much they just how how much how into the details they are with all of this. Um, And, you know, just it was a a part, you know, relocating your supply chain is not something I really have thought about very much. Um, And they really kind of opened my eyes to it. I found that very, 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 that very interesting. 
But next, anyways, let's do a um, we 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 want to go into some stuff that we talked about a little bit before. So, uh, but we we um, we didn't always have everything right. So we want to make sure that uh, you know these are my yeah. corrections. Uh, <laughs> the CTI <laughs> corrections. <laughs> So what what do we got? Uh, first, first one. Uh, so Jack Ma um, joined the CCP in university. Okay. Um, so the question of we when talked about that with was, Chris Balding yeah. a couple episodes ago. Yeah. And then uh, I guess last time, last episode, I was saying that Huawei I thought was kind of a one-off thing, and uh, it seems like it's gotten more serious um, than I thought. So yeah. Definitely more serious on the political front. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the I've been covering this a lot, um, writing about it, you know, going on, um, you know, some other shows to talk about it. But yeah, I've been. It's it is a, a complicated mess. Um, so we don't have to go into it too much de- too in too many too in too much detail. There we go. Um, but yeah, it is a uh, a bit of a quagmire with all of that. Um, but speaking of, of uh, smartphone, Chinese smartphone makers uh, abroad, um, let's move to our watch list. We don't have too much going on, but let's talk about Xiaomi. Uh, they have announced that they are restructuring to increase their focus on the Chinese market. So my first reaction to this was through the prism of, of Huawei, right, to through that lens to say, okay, oh, well, you know, maybe they're, they're worried about what's happening to Huawei, kind of getting shut out of these overseas markets, um, that maybe they're, they're worried about being next. Um, I think that might be part of their calculus, but when I talked with, uh, Jill Shen from, from Technode, who has been covering this story, uh, she kind of opened my eyes to, uh, some other areas. And one is that, um, the the market that they're looking at in China is very very different than the one that they're seeing outside of China, and that outside of China they're competing largely on price. So they're less of a well known brand uh, internationally. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to hit, um, you know, they're, they're trying to hit the low end of the market and just try to get people, um, you know, try to get people into their ecosystem based on on offering them better deals. Um, in China, they have more of a brand premium. Uh, everyone knows who Xiaomi is in China. They're very popular. Uh, Lei Jun, their founder, is kind of seen as this like cute, you know, uncle figure <laughs> to a lot of people. Um, they really like their their brand, you know, in, in China. So they are able to charge more of a brand premium and work and move up the value chain. So um, I think that. Uh, from from speaking with Jill a little bit is that you know they're they have two very different strategies uh, Guanay versus Guai right so you know internally in China versus outside of China so by kind of restructuring uh, to focus on that they um, you know they're, they're able to do that better but I do wonder for their future we talked about all these these larger macro trends trends with China we, we've discussed in in a podcast before about this consumption downgrade um if huawei or if, not huawei xiaomi's strategy is to sell more premium products in china are they kind of moving in the opposite direction as the the market trends um i don't know i mean hopefully they have some good data and they're making their decisions on their internal data 
Um, but I mean, if you just look at, if people are buying their higher end products, um, I would imagine those have better margins than probably what they have to spend on marketing products in new markets, plus having to sell lower end, cheaper products, right? Um, mm. I think that's, you know, and if you think about it, if, if they, if you want a comp, if you want a company to go where its strengths are, uh, if it is building and growing, its market share in China, then that's they should focus on that and really try to keep that going. Um, plus, they ju- they just have so much more. I mean, their products are made here. They're I mean, it's probably a lot. They're they're protected from international trade uh, disputes if they're kind of more domestic folks. Fo- yeah, an- another thought that comes to my mind is that it could be highly possible that they're just burning too much money in this international expansion. And maybe it's just um, they're thinking that it might not be worth it for them. And that in order to give their shareholders what they're asking for, they might need to trim down some of that overseas you know, cash burn and focus on the domestic market where they're making yeah. more money. I mean, it's very possible that overseas users will want a different kind of user experience than the Chinese market. Uh, so they would, they might have to even invest in R and D to make it different. I mean, it already has to be different in a language basic basis, but, uh, that's a little easier, but if they need like actual user, user experience differences, I mean, that's, that can, um, I imagine that gets expensive plus the overseas marketing, you know, I mean, yeah. 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 And, and I think that, you know, they, they actually do have an ecosystem in China. You know, they're, they're called the Apple of China. Um, I think, you know, we've, we've talked about this before. I think that that's kind of a, a ridiculous comparison. But the comparison is more apt within China than it is outside of China. Um, they do have an ecosystem here. Um, and I think that, that if you look at how they are and how they're used in China, I think with a lot of these companies, actually, where they innovate so well within the Chinese ecosystem, and it's a much bigger challenge to do it outside of China. Um, so uh, maybe this is the best choice for them, but you know, I've been, you know, I'm, I can need to get a new phone in the next couple of months. My screen on my Samsung is cracked and I've been considering a Xiaomi. Um, we'll see. Um, uh, one more watch list company, uh, and that's Baidu and they're investing RMB 1 billion in mini program development. So we've talked about mini program before, mini programs before, um, you know, they, WeChat's had a lot of success with them. Uh, kind of these these how would we explain them for people who are not involved in um, not living in China? Right. It's like if you had an um, what it, it's I guess in Facebook you have games that are in Facebook, right? Mm. It's kind of like that. Um, it's like yeah. a thing inside. Yeah. It's an app inside of an app. <laughs> Russian dolls, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but there, I, I, to say it's just an app inside of an app, I think, um, I think this is a real. This is a WeChat really, cool. really innovated here. I think really it's a, cool. It's really, really um, convenient, helpful, amazing, and yeah. necessary and useful. Um, and that if there's a, there are a few areas where they're really, really helpful. One is that they're really easier to access, so you don't need to download. Um, two is that they are they're very lightweight. So they're very, they don't take up a lot of space on your phone because you don't download them. Um, it just makes the apps a little clunkier, but that's about it. Um, 
and they're much easier to develop. So if you have a specific event, for example, um, to develop a whole app for one event is kind of annoying. But you could develop a mini program very easily in just a few days. And I think um, there, without a lot, I of think there are mini programs that allow you to create an event like website inside its mini program that you can share. <laughs> so it's, it actually, it, I mean, it, it, you, you have many programs that make, you, as long as there's some sort of structured data, which, you know, any, you know, if you, an event's a perfect one, time, place, you know, date, uh, you know, what, and then some image or some stuff, information about it. That's very simple. Um, food delivery is a popular one. Restaurant ordering, like even, like mm-hmm. you go to a restaurant, you scan a QR code on the table and it pops up the menu in WeChat and you just, in their mini program, you order your stuff. And some of these are better. Some restaurants have better ones than others. Some, some are like very intuitive and obvious. They copy what all the other restaurants do and some try to do something different. Um, anyway, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty convenient. Uh, and I li- living in China, I, I definitely use them often. Yeah, they're super useful. But now everyone's doing it. So Baidu is doing one. You know, they're trying to develop their mini program ecosystem. Uh, ByteDance has been to, trying to develop a mini program ecosystem. There's been talk of Alibaba doing it as well. So um, I don't know what the ultimate end game is here. Um, but I, I did talk. I spoke with a few people who are you know in the the business of mini programs, and they're Chinese, and they were they're quite frank about this. Um, is that they were just like, yeah, it's a, you know, uh, Android and, uh, you know, the app store, the, the play store and the app store are, you know, the, the, they're all run by American companies, uh, iOS, Android, right. These are Google and Apple. Um, and these mini programs, they can just kind of overlay on top of them so that, um, it's a way that it's that kind of that you can take a Chinese platform and just kind of overlay it on top of, um, you know, Android or iOS rather than just replacing it. Um, but it is a, a top down initiative. I don't know if it started out. I don't know if, if when, when WeChat first launched them, they were a top down initiative, but now we're seeing kind of from the, the, the more central government, uh, and the central planners saying like, oh, this is, this has a lot of use. So let's get everyone else to do it. So we're seeing, that's why we're seeing all these companies, you know, get on the, the mini program bandwagon. You know? I mean, I thought they'd do it just because it's, it's, uh, it keeps people, you know, I, I mean, they want to keep users in their app, right? They get more eyeballs, more eyeball time. Um, and if you have more eyeballs, more eyeball time, then, uh, you know, you kind of win. And if you have people have to go leave your app, open another app and then come back, they might not come back. But if you're in your app and they close the app, yeah. the mini program, and then they're, they're back in your app already. So it's like, you don't, you, it's just a more seamless, um, kind of way to keep you captive, I guess, or keep you. Yeah. That was my thought as well. Um, and I think that's probably part of it, but yeah, I, I, but I, I have been surprised by how Frank, uh, Chinese contacts of mine who work in either for Baidu or for um, some of these other companies uh, who have uh, you know who who are dealing with mini programs. They're you know when they talk about it, they just go straight to the the political. Um, but it might just be how political politically heated everything is right now. Um, but is but that like a data angle, or is it a like more data is collect? If, obviously, if you have mini programs on your app, there you're serving something from. I guess your servers, you get, you collect more data that way. 
Is that the angle? Yeah, I think or it's is- that, that, and that's also where the value is added, right? So the if the so you look at, for example, China, they really they have Chinese Chinese companies. Um, they have a lot. Uh, if you look at the entire kind of chain, the information chain, or the, the I don't know how you the telecommunications chain, right? The, all that hardware Chinese companies can make, right? A lot of these are not super high margin. Where the margin is is the interface, right? So that's where where Apple's making all their money. You know, that's where a lot of where Google has been making their money. Um, so. Um, you know, it's the internet services, that's what Xiaomi is trying to do, right? They're trying to make more money off that, those internet services. Um, so inst- for a long time, Chinese companies have been trying to compete with Google and iOS by just kind of by replacing their uh, kind of user interfaces, but it's a very hard thing to do. So this is a way for them to just kind of overlay it on top of them. Um, but anyways, let's move forward. <laughs> so let's move to our interview with Alex Bryant and Mark Plume of East West Associates. As costs of doing business in China increase and U.S.-China economic tensions worsen, many firms are considering diversifying their supply chain away from the Middle Kingdom. However, this is no easy feat, and China still offers many advantages that other countries do not. Joining us today are Alex Bryant and Mark Plume of East West Associates. Uh, Alex founded East West Associates in 2005, which provides operational, commercial, and risk management solutions on the ground in China and the Asia Pacific. Mark is a director at East West Associates, and prior to this, he held senior level positions with US multinational companies. Um, the last of which was with what, Mark? Ah, yes, Briggs and Stratton, the number one engine, largest small engine manufacturer in the world out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay, all right. Well, Mark and Alex, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having us. There, there is a lot going on right now when it comes to uh, uh, supply chain in Asia and in China. Um, so let, let's first. I want to ask. Uh, I want to ask you, Alex. Um, so if if somebody is, is is they they have relied on their on having their supply chain kind of centered around China for 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 a decade or two. Um, it, and they're trying to think about, well, is this the time to leave? Is this the time to, to kind of diversify away from China? What are the reasons for a factory to stay in China? And what are the reasons for them to leave? Sure. Thank you. And I'll, I'll, I think I will, I will add our comments, then Mark could step in and add his comments. And, um, but generally, the way for a lot of mid-sized companies that are operating in China, most of them, just a historical perspective, most of them went over there in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, set up operations over there, got good tax incentives to put in those facilities, identified good suppliers, primarily in tier one cities of uh, uh, around southern China, Shanghai, Beijing, Ningbo area, and they were able to run and become profitable uh, in an environment which was China was growing pretty rapidly. And there was availability of employees. The cost of employees was relatively low. They had the good tax incentives and they brought products which were needed into the marketplace. So that was late 90s, early 2000s. We we know as of today, China is quite a different marketplace, right? You have much more increased competition from local competitors, from international competitors, much more, um, uh, much higher costs for overhead costs, for labor costs. 
The tax incentives for a number of these factories has no longer there. A number of these companies have been expanding their sales into China, but also Asia Pacific. Um, a number of companies still have the old model, which is a manufactured in China for export back to the U.S. So, and uh, many of them have in China a defined supply chain base or a supply chain base in China and Asia Pacific. So, if that is the perspective of what's going on, on the ground now, when you look at a company and you, the question is, what are the reasons for a factory to stay in China? versus reasons to leave, it really affects and depends upon where their market is. If their market is in China and they need to remain in China to, to sell into China, they're manufacturing in China, they're selling in China, they're procuring in China, they generally are not affected by the tariff situations. They are, however, affected by the increased overhead, increased labor rates. So many of them are now looking to leave uh, the tier one cities where they are of Shanghai and Beijing and and move to other locations where they can get quality tax incentives and potentially lower cost employees because they need to cut their costs and improve their performance in order to remain competitive with the local labor force. For those that are manufacturing in China that have an export model back to the U.S., China now is a place where they may realize there's no longer a place for them because they have higher costs of labor, they have got higher costs of overhead, they've got higher costs to operating in China. Um, so for those companies, many of them are looking either to um, cut their costs if they have to stay in China, or they may relocate to Asia Pacific, where many of them are developing strong sales, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines, and then some of them are, um, th those are the kind of companies that would necessarily leave China. Mark, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, no, Alex is, is exactly right. The, the really determining factor is if you're selling there, if, you're, if you've got brand and you're selling and your consumption is in China, you really can't be leaving China then to try to sell back into China. So you, your whole job there is to become more efficient. Uh, if you're not tethered to China based on, on consumption, then basically it opens up all of Asia for you, whether it's shipping it back to China or shipping it to the States or, or maybe even more importantly, addressing the large ASEAN, the ASEAN uh, markets. So, yeah, it's, it, it kind of depends on each individual. But the situation in the last 20 years and the, uh, those of us who live there, I mean, from labor rates to GDP rates to, to, uh, labor uh, turnover, it's, China's changed tremendously in the last 15, 20 years. It seems like there are, are really two issues here. One is the, the more recent ones and the ones that are a little more, um, uh, maybe a little more volatile, a little more unpredictable, and that, that is when it comes to tariffs and the relations with the United States. The other is one that is a little more long-term, a little more predictable, which is uh, that uh, wages in China are, are increasing that it is not the hub for low-cost manufacturing that it used to be. So one of the, if, if you're looking at uh, the second issue there, right, which is, uh, you know, the cost of doing business increasing, wage increase, wage, wages increasing, um, one option that I believe, Alex, you mentioned earlier is to move from these, um, these kind of higher cost centers like Shanghai, like Ningbo, um, like, you know, down in Guangdong, to uh, somewhere more inland. Um, are there specific cities inland that you think um, are proving themselves as being uh, kind of a, as, as being a good opportunity 
uh, for for companies to relocate their supply chains within China. Yeah, well, yeah. This is Mark. No, that's that's exactly right. Um, you know, it's if you're there in, uh, for example, I mean, people have been doing it for years. I put a facility into into uh, Chongqing, China, in ninety five, ninety six, kind of anticipating long term, and that's of course when you know the, the 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 dam was finished and you could bring product up the river. So, uh, uh, Wuhan is another place where people are, you know, so going in that direction, or you can go even out. Out, out, out west in Jiangsu province and get out, you know, Nanjing, Changzhou and those areas, which, as you mentioned, you get, you know, you got Shanghai is expensive, Suzhou, you know, at one time was was not so expensive. So now you got to get past Suzhou and get out around Nanjing. So then you can take advantage of, of the rivers there, of course. So, um, yeah, there's different places that, that you can, it just, it, it, it's all trade-offs. It's trade-offs with transparency. It's trade-offs with local governments. Uh uh, Chongqing right now is is pretty transparent. When when I took a, f- a facility there back in ninety, actually it was two thousand two. Excuse me. Uh, it uh, was not quite so transparent. We had to you, know, you had to kind of struggle with some of that stuff where you don't have to struggle with that in Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou, Guangdong area. But the but the labor rates are 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 really difficult, and the turnover of employees is really difficult in those areas. You could. Companies easily can have a turnover rates of 20, 25%, which is if in the States you had those kind of turnovers, you'd be looking for a new job. One of the, this is Alex, one of the challenges, uh, Mark's correct, I mean, you'd leave in companies like uh, places like Shanghai or Suzhou or um, Beijing or uh, Tianjin, they're moving to trying to find other areas. Now that can, um, there's a benefit to that and there's some uh, uh, downsides to it. If, let's say you're moving out to Wuxi, for example, um, which is a, a pretty well-developed area, but it's, it's um, or you're moving to Nantong, for example, now that we've got the bridge and um, we are building a factory in Nantong now. Um, five, six years ago, that would have been a little far away. Now the that park is is very aggressive and people are going there. Um, the challenge when you you get further out west is you're going to get a better rate of labor. You're going to get a probably a, a decent incentive package, uh, not the incentive package you used to get, but the decent incentive package. But then you get the question of human resources. You may have a large labor force there of unskilled workers that you will need to train. But then the question becomes, where do you get mid-level managers? We had a medical facility um, up near Jiangsu um, about five, six years ago, and we really had a hard time finding a quality general manager uh, because this factory was very unique. It drew wire, uh, which were used in the heart procedures. So it was very detailed work. We had a large number of lower blue-collar employees some mid-level managers and a very difficult time finding a proper general manager who had technical skill set. So when you make these moves, um, there's always a counterbalance trade. So we find a lot of clients are picking, a lot of companies are picking a real decision. They're they're spending time really going through that site selection process uh, to think through this, and they're making sure that they're getting in the right parks. But it's not just moving west to get cheap location because there's some negatives that come with that. So we've covered the advantages and disadvantages of moving within China. What about the ASEAN countries? Are there similar disadvantages there where it's difficult to find certain types of labor 
And as Bark was saying about Chongqing in the early 2000s, is it similarly murky and kind of difficult to do things? Yeah, um, yeah. This is Mark. Uh, now, ASEAN is well. You kind of look at it. I think kind of two ways. You, particularly if you're selling there, the the size of markets. You know, if you take the, all the ASEAN countries, it's about 800 million people. They're averaging five to six percent GDP, and it's about a three trillion dollar uh, uh, economy in those all, all those ASEAN countries. So, if you happen to be selling down there or in that area, it's a tremendous market. And then, of course, now with what they're offering. Um, I think I was might have mentioned a little earlier. Countries like like Thailand, for sure, was was uh, kind of China before China was China. Meaning, uh, they were uh, people. They were in the '90s when I lived there. Uh, automobile guys were all there. The the electronics guys were all there. American and and uh, and Japanese global HVAC guys were all there. So, no, it, the interesting part of and then they lost a lot of it after the course the currency crisis and. In 96, 97, and then and then China really got aggressive with labor and with uh, tax incentives, and a lot of businesses then you know began to move to China uh, back you know late nineties and in that area, and places like the Philippines, places like uh, like Thailand, uh, Indonesia lost a lot of that business, but now it's kind of it's it's turning to some degree, and we're finding now. That uh, like almost all the countries, uh, the labor rates in Thailand are maybe half now what China was, and China was half of what what, th- what Thailand was twenty years ago, and Vietnam is maybe is half of what uh, uh, what Thailand is, or a quarter of China. So uh, business is actually and is is beginning to kind of kind of turn around, and, and some of it's, a lot of it's coming back down there. And in the case of Thailand, certainly pretty good transparency. Uh, labor labor skill levels are are on par with China. Um, government, of course, as we know, is a is a is a uh, you know it's a military government, but they're with it. But they've gone through changes of government, you know, quite often down there, and they seem to let business be business and tourism be tourism. So um, it's really not the Wild West. I mean, Laos, Cambodia, sure, that would be the Wild West, but you know, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Philippines, Thailand. Really, pretty, pretty transparent and in uh, in uh, pretty good workforce. Yeah, I would add that um, one of the when when you're looking at those parts of the of Asia Pacific, companies are looking there not only for sourcing, right? You let's say you've got a company that is um, that's that's uh, sourcing straight out of China, bringing it back to the U.S. And there are plenty of companies that do that. They're now facing a twenty five percent tariffs. So there are a lot of companies that are aggressively trying to identify supply bases of supply chain in Asia Pacific. Secondly, there are a lot of companies that are trying to expand their sales and marketing into Asia Pacific. If you're manufacturing, operating in China, and you want to start selling in Asia Pacific, you've got some really strong markets down there. And we see a lot of companies trying to develop um, those markets because within the China market, there's so much... In, Increased local competition, increased international competition, that it is extremely aggressive. So they're trying to expand their sales and marketing efforts there. And I would add that when you're looking at Asia Pacific, one of the key things of the work that we're doing in, in those countries is um, helping companies take a long term look. Because if you look at the labor rates, you look at the social costs, you look at the projected labor inflation rates, those are really significant. Um, compared to when you start comparing all, all the countries together. Um, 
if you we just sat down for analysis for uh, a company and we're looking at the labor rates for them and we were comparing Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, um, uh, Vietnam, China, um, and Singapore, and you look at the labor rates, you look at the projected labor rate costs and the social costs, it's very dramatic numbers that you're looking at if you're employing a couple hundred people. And it is uh, significant. Secondly, is because Thailand, um, Vietnam, some of these other countries have lost business to China in the past, they're extremely aggressive now about getting offering and providing much better tax incentives. to buy land, to build facilities, to establish operations, put in R&D centers, put in sourcing or procurement labs than they ever have been in the past. Wow. Um, so when it comes to the the companies that you're advising and working with, um, you know, just you're talking to people, you're having conversations every day. Um, what what are they saying? Um, you know, wh- how do you feel? How do you gauge the sentiment? Um, you know, are they, are they looking to move out of China? Are they bullish on kind of the long term of staying in China? Um, is it is it a trade war thing? Is it a tariff thing? Are there other issues as well? Um, wh- what exactly are you feeling when you're just you know just talking to folks and and just 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 listening and just you know chatting with them over lunch? Um, what are you hearing from them? I'll uh, I'll take uh, this is Alex. I, th- I think the way that when we're talking to multiple companies and many of most of the companies we're talking to are Western companies um, and some Chinese companies. But let's just look at the Western companies to so be North American, European companies that have factories on the ground in China. And the way we're encouraging the way our dialogue is going with them is that t- tariffs itself. Is just one more challenge these companies have when operating and investing in China, right? I mean, tariffs can can increase, they can decrease, they may stay the same. It's all going to depend on the negotiations between the Chinese and U.S. government. But it's still just it is just another issue. If you look back over the other issues these companies are dealing with, the in- increase of labor and overhead costs. They've got increased environmental regulations, significant increased environmental regulations going on in China that have resulted in a number of uh, companies either having their own facilities shut down or losing a large number of their own supply chain base. It's caused significant disruption in the supply chain market. They're looking out and they're seeing they've got fraud and corruption that exists in China just as it does everywhere else. And 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 we're seeing more of that. You've got your IP risks. You've got your non-tariff barriers. You've got greater competition. All of these different aspects are forcing and pushing and hammering on profit margins. So for those operating on the ground in China, selling into China, they're under much tougher business environment than they were, say, a a short five or six years ago. Right, And those things aren't going to go away. And then down the road, they've got China 2025 that's coming. So it's they recognize it's a much tougher place to operate, but they also recognize it's a great market. They need to be there. They that's why they went over there for those companies that are manufacturing and selling in China. It's just a much tougher market for those that are not that are manufacturing in China, but China is not the end market, or China is say twenty to twenty five percent of their business, and the remaining seventy five is in Asia Pacific or the U S. Those companies 
are now looking at going and what they can do to go other places. But if you're in China and you're facing all these environments, a lot of the attention they're turning to is to improve their own operations. So you see much more performance improvement efforts, much more cost cutting, um, because they've got to be as competitive as they can on the ground there. They no longer have fluff that they can have in their uh, budget. Um, you have to take all of that out and be as, as competitive and lean as you possibly can if you're in China and making poor China and selling into that market. Yeah, this, this is Mark, just to add to what Alex said. Uh, yeah, the tariffs, I mean, you you can't, it's really tough to make a, a hundreds of million dollars decision to move a factory based on on a couple guys having, having lunch together in Washington, D.C. You know, and all of a sudden one day you have tariffs, one day next day you may not have tariffs. But it's it's just another mitigating thing, as Alex mentioned, with labor, 2025, uh, transparency issues, non you know, that non-tariff barriers. It's it's just something that you have to kind of, and then uh, and then if you and then if you find that, uh, and then if you've run out of say tax incentives in other areas outside of China are offering tax incentives like China did in the early two thousands, then for those guys it might make sense to to look at other things. But but duties alone or tariffs, pardon me, tariffs alone uh, would not be. It's 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 kind of the straw that's beginning to not break the camel's back, but maybe strain the camel even more. This week, some news came out saying Samsung is closing their plant and factory in Tianjin, uh, and that got me thinking. If you're going to close a plant, what do you need to do in anticipation, and how much time and what kind of tasks do you need to accomplish? Uh, is this something you could start, let's say, six months ago, um, or do you, would you need any more, even more time? Could you give us some color on what's typically needed there? Sure. When you have to close a facility, there's um, we have a very defined uh, three-step process doing this. Um, but you've got, and sometimes you're closing it and you're downsizing the factory for good. Other times you're closing a facility and then picking up and relocate. So there are a couple different scenarios, right? So just breaking those down, if you are going to close a facility and, and then that's it, right, then you are going to have to be very clear about what you are doing and how the information rolls out and how well you protect and respect the employees you have there. There is, uh, we spend oftentimes three, four, five, six months in advance of the closure getting all of the information corrected, getting all the information about the kind of severance package because these employees have got to be retreated be treated respectfully so one aspect you've got to get is when you before you close you've got to look around and see what other companies who have left or closed what they offer their employees because every time the last person leaves that becomes the new benchmark so that's that's kind of issue number one two you've got to make sure really evaluate the workforce to see if there's a if they've had uh, workplace violence in the past have there been strikes what kind of employees and we've got it down so that we can look at the kind of employees and the kind of age and the gender of the employees and get a very good sense of the kind of challenges we're going to have because each of these employees and um, will have different, um, historically, different responses to closures. Um, and you got to look at whether these people can get another job outside of it. 
But the first part of the process is you've got to spend a lot of time up front planning it. You've got to be able to roll it out that day, and you've got to provide them a good, valuable option uh, to get them to sign those employment contracts, right? Because you've got to sign all of them. And then third is the last section, which is a nine to ten month process, getting all of the taxes in place. There's, um, it's not the, it's a laborious process. It's not the hardest part of it. It's just a, a time consuming. But there's a really defined process. We, we have closed and relocated about 65 different factories in China, just in, in the last number of years. Um, so it's one scenario to close it. It's another scenario if you are going to relocate it, and we're in the process now of doing one up in uh, Beijing. That factory is going to be relocated about 18 kilometers away. So we are not going to lose any employees in that scenario. So there's not the question here of of worrying about workplace violence or strikes. Everyone is going to keep that position. Now it's a question of figuring out how you relocate it and manage that relocation. Because in some cases, if you... Uh, we relocated a, an automotive factory. You've got to do PPAP testing for that particular industry sector. So depending on the industry you're in, it requires certain levels of testing to relocate that equipment, to relocate the people. Uh, you've got to negotiate with the park you're in, negotiate with the park where you're going, because one park's gaining um, a tax revenue, the other one's losing it, right? So there's those issues. And then the third is actually if you were closing it and relocating it, way outside and those people are going to lose their jobs then you get involved you still got to manage that process the issue here is you've got to make sure they they the employees even though they're going to close the factory you got to make sure you've got maintained relationships with a number of employees who are going to help you to honestly relocate that equipment and keep them involved and to do it accurately just as when you close a factory you still generally have to run the factory three or four more months after you've announced closure. And so how do you keep those people motivated? And that's a very important part of the business. Sounds like like HR is involved in a lot of this. Like I didn't I didn't think about how much of this is HR. Well, yeah, I mean this is Mark and that's it's a huge part of it and then and then even then when you get to, we we even get down to 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 the detail if you're if you're moving it out of China, well then we're then you have to hold the whole market study piece that you have to go through. Then if you say, okay, then if you want to say maybe take your equipment and ship it, well, certain countries and certain parks don't allow don't allow used equipment. So, it's it's you have it's very very detailed and uh as you know, I've, we've all been involved in those, and and then you have to close your books out correctly and make sure all your VAT is taken care of. Because if you leave China or you you want to make sure or just close a facility, you want to do it legally and correctly because you know it's going to affect your other businesses in China. Whether you want to come back in or you have another facility, and you don't want to be considered a bad corporate citizen by doing things incorrectly. Then you throw on top of that the environmental regulations, right? Which which previously a lot of companies didn't have work, didn't have to spend as much focus on. But now when you leave, you've got to have that site in as good or better location than when you brought, right? So now there's a whole new environmental piece, and we take that obviously we're taking that very seriously. But you've got to make sure. So when you decide to move, there's a whole step involved of looking at the land, looking at uh, the soil testing, all of that, which which is critical to make sure that when you leave, 
you have approval to leave, and they're leaving that site in not a bad condition. A big piece, as I said too. Then, uh, and, and then you know, if you're if you're deciding to leave China on that facility and relocate in, in ASEAN or other places, then of course you has I mentioned earlier you have the whole market study piece and where do you go and you know uh, you know where can you get you know, tax incentives and good labor rates and transparency. So then you need to look at all the ASEAN countries because you kind of have to do that kind of before because once you're closed, you have to go somewhere and depending yeah. on what your plan is and. You know, so again, we we're we're just we're just finalizing one now from from where the time they just they decided they wanted to begin to look at different markets, uh, including China, from you know a six country study from you know tremendous amounts of due diligence on the countries to to selecting the country, then to finding the architects and engineers and buying the land and negotiating the board of investment incentives. To actually uh, building the building and uh, and bringing it up out of the ground, uh, we're doing that right now, and uh, we, it's we're at, we're we're about twenty months into it, and we'll be finished in two months, and in and so just a little shy of two, just a little shy of twenty months, we'll have moved a facility from China to Thailand, uh, a fifty million dollar investment, and and turnkeyed the thing from. You know, again, as I, as I said, you know, finding, you know, negotiating tax incentives, buying the land, finding the architects and engineers, and hiring the people, and then building the building. So, it's uh, it's quite a process. Wow. So, um, I, we don't want to take too much more of your time, but one question that I was wondering is, you know, we we focus on primarily technology companies on this podcast. So Shenzhen and in a lot of Guangdong. Um, more than just Shenzhen, have really, you know, made their name from their uh, technology hardware that they, you know, that they produce. Um, so if we're looking at, at companies that are considering to, considering moving out um, of that area, you know, um, we, James mentioned before the Samsung factory in Tianjin, you know, there's been talk, there have been talks about uh, Foxconn relocating um, and Apple relocating their supply chain. Um, when we're looking at these ASEAN countries, um, where do you think the next hotspots are for um, for hardware? Well, I'll go first, and then Alex can, can maybe jump in. I mean, there's been some historic good spots over the years. Uh, at, you know, a lot of lot of technology companies and electronic companies have been in Penang in northern Malaysia for for many many years and been quite successful. The uh, the Japanese electronic companies have been in in Thailand in the Rayong area uh, for for you know many 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 years going back. Uh, Vietnam now I think's just just attracted a uh, a new chip facility. So, I mean, there's I think you got some great potentials, i.e. The, the, the Malaysians for you know the 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 Thais, the Vietnam. Vietnam seems to be kind of the uh, very popular right now. Uh, some friends of ours we know really quite well put in a sophisticated bottling facility, quite very sophisticated. As I said, Intel's got a new facility in there. Uh, Mitsubishi Metals have just put a, a huge a new blast furnace in just south of Ho Chi Minh City for uh, you know as far as so to, 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 for for steel. Um, you know those areas for sure. I'm not depending on what you produce, but you know I don't think for electronics you we're right quite ready yet for Laos and Cambodia and Bangladesh. But uh, some of the Shenzhen stuff, I think those three areas I just mentioned were are very viable. Yeah, I would agree. The electronics companies we work with generally will have facilities in uh, 
China, Malaysia, Japan, <clears throat> the electronic companies or technology companies, those are traditionally three of the ones where they're they're operating in. And then they were they're looking in Vietnam, Thailand, um, um, outside Malaysia. I, I think the issue there is even for the technology companies in China, the um, IP and corruption is a key issue for a lot of these technology companies in the sense of from an HR perspective how you are qualifying and doing the proper background checks and due diligence on each of the employees you hire right in order to protect your IP that same issue is going to be quite relevant when they're relocating to Thailand or these other markets that that challenge of getting that background of that employee really knowing um, and putting the process in place to protect your intellectual property is going to be as critical more when they're moving to these other locations. Uh, and right now, it's a critical piece for a lot of technology companies in China. That same piece will, will apply when they move to these other locations. And if you look at, say, Thailand, they're very aggressively going after technology um, because they view, so they're, they're trying to go after high-end uh, technology equipment, uh, manufacturers, high-end uh, software companies, because they've got a broad base of a number of universities, a number uh, they're giving very good tax incentives. Other countries, Asia Pacific, are doing the same thing. They all want a piece of the technology space, um, and uh, so we're seeing that in, in Vietnam, Thailand, for example. But the HR issue is just a critical thing to think about because they've got to do the same thing on the ground in those countries as far as evaluating background checks that they're doing in China now. Hmm. All right. Um, James, do you have any more questions? I guess uh, just one more question, though I feel like we could talk for a long time. Um, we only have time for one, maybe. Um, you know, one of the things you hear about China and its strengths as a manufacturer to the world is its quality of transportation and having a lot of suppliers to choose from. Are those things you guys are seeing as disadvantages for factories moving out? And I guess, uh, first of all, are those real? Um, and if so, how do you address them? Yeah, yeah. This is Mark. That's that's a that's a that's a critical point. Uh, China, China. China, I should say, has great infrastructure. I mean, for they've they've been throwing hundreds and hundreds, if not billions, of dollars at this for twenty years. I mean, thus all of us who travel there a lot. Every airport we we travel through is pretty much new. Every train that we we ride on is pretty much new. Every highway we travel on, every every new bridge. I mean, it's they've done a great job, and that's been that's a core competency that is very difficult to to replicate. Uh, so. In wherever you go, you're probably not going to have the kind of infrastructure that you have in China. Uh, so those are those are the things you have to balance. Thailand would be good, but not like not like China. Vietnam would be would be less would be less certainly than than Thailand. So, but you'll I don't believe in, in at least in my lifetime you can replicate what China's done in, in billions of dollars of investment in infrastructure. You just have to find a place that where the trade-offs make sense, where the tax incentives make sense. I mean, for example, um, a client of ours had used up their tax incentives, frankly, in China, already couldn't get any more, and they went to and were able to negotiate eight years of no tax, five years of 50% tax. So in that case, you know the incentives were such that they were able to be I mean, a little more flexible on what they what they had hoped to get for as far as you know uh, it, it wouldn't be as good infrastructure 
but the business model still made a lot of sense for them. And in that case, the business model was they were they were selling only about 15-20% in China, so therefore they had the luxury to manufacture be outside of China and service the China market in the Asia-Pacific. I think on the logistics piece and the infrastructure piece, I agree with Mark, the, the, the China has no, no equal when it comes to logistics and it comes to infrastructure in China. And that really helps a lot of companies, right? It provides a lot of companies who are manufacturing in China, their supply chain base is China, and they're selling in China. It gives them much greater flexibility to leave a tier one city where they were operating and move to further away because there's, they know that they've got the airports, they've got the roads they've got, um, that can allow them to move. So they can move Wuxi, Wuhan, Chongqing. They can keep moving further out west, and they know that the infrastructure there is really quite good. And so it gives them much greater flexibility in their own business. And you see the Western companies taking advantage of that, and so are the Chinese companies taking advantage of that. And um, you, you see, for example, uh, um, a number of um, even Chinese firms are, have, have moved, for example, in certain industry sectors, they've moved further north, right? The, what, the suppliers, both U.S. and local Chinese suppliers, have moved near their end customers. That uh, benefits both Westerners and Chinese, and, and no one has that in Asia-Pacific like, like China does. Yeah, we're seeing this in tech a lot. Um, Xiaomi, which is based in Beijing, has been moving a lot of their operations um, and a lot, a lot of their their offices, their white collar work, um, down to Wuhan. Um, so we're seeing we're seeing a lot of this shift to these uh, these second and third tier tech hubs. But anyways, um, Alex and Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Um, if if our listeners would like to get in touch with you or would like to learn more about East West Associates, uh, what should they do? Uh, they can. Uh, they are happy to uh, email us at uh, Alex A. Bryant at eastwestassociates.com. They can join us on LinkedIn. They can join us on Twitter. They can join our web uh, our website um, at uh, and and sign in. And um, we are happy to talk to them about the activities they're facing on the ground in China and Asia Pacific. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thanks. Well, that just about does it for us today. Uh, but first, we want to remind you all to go to techno.com slash newsletters and sign up to their newsletters. And uh, also rate us on iTunes if you like the podcast. Five stars, please. Or give us a star on Overcast or just, just wherever you get your podcast. Just give us an, a nice review. Uh, before we sign off, James, what are you what are you looking forward to this week? I'm looking forward to see what the Fed says, uh, Jerome Powell says, and what comes out of the China Economic Work Committee and Christmas parties. <laughs> so in addition to those, um, I'm also looking forward to those. I'm in the U.S. right now, so spending some time with family. So it's a whole lot of Christmas cheer and uh, and weight gain for me. So I'm probably going to put on a good like 10 to 15 pounds on this trip. Um, but in Fun. addition to that, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say looking forward to this, but one thing that I'm keeping an eye on and kind of keeping an ear to the ground with uh, is layoffs for tech companies mm. in China. So, you know, we've talked a lot um, about how, you know, these companies are, you know, they, they had very high valuations and they hired on high valuations. And now that they're going public, it's more of a bear market and they got to cut costs. And one way of doing that is by letting people go. So, um, 
You know, there have been rumors about, for example, Tencent. We talked about Smartisan. Uh, there have been rumors about JD as well. Um, so I, in China especially, they don't just make this stuff entirely transparent. So, you know, they don't want to, to, to bring a lot of attention to it. So it's kind of one of these things where, you know, you hear it through the, it's, it's xiao dao xiao xi, right? It's, uh, it's kind of like back alley gossip that mm. you hear uh, in, in Chinese tech circles. But um, it is something, it is an indicator of, um, of optimism, as we mentioned before. Um, and, uh, you know, what, what areas are, are remaining strong and, and what areas are not in the Chinese economy. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anything else we want to talk about, James? Yeah. Uh, no, that sounds good. I mean, layoffs, whew, let's hope that, uh, the rumors don't play out, but yeah, if they're going to do it, I guess, end of year. Um, yeah, this is when, it, when it happens. Yeah. And, and also, you know, it's it's when you join a tech company, it is also kind of what you it's, it's part of the deal, you know, Yeah. that, you know, you're not going to have a job for life, you know. So right. anyways, um, thanks as always to John Artman and uh, join us all next time on the China Tech Investor Podcast. Bye bye now. Bye.